back in June of 2016, a month before Donald Trump won the Republican nomination, House Majority Leader Republican Kevin McCarthy met with Paul Ryan. Here's Washington Post reporter Adam Entis discussing a tape of that meeting. McCarthy then adds, There's two people I think Putin pays, Rohrbacher and Trump. There's then laughter by some of the lawmakers in the room, and then McCarthy adds, Swear to God. Ryan then interjects and says, quote, This is an off-the-record. No leaks, all right? Ryan then adds, this is how we know we're a real family here. Welcome to Bots and Ballots. I'm Grant Burningham. The Rohrbacher McCarthy was referring to is Dana Rohrbacher, a California congressman for almost 30 years. McCarthy and Ryan both later said what was caught on tape was a joke. But it's not the first or last time Rohrbacher's name has come up when it comes to Russia. Today, I'm talking to Bill Browder, an investor who made billions in post-Soviet Russia and then fell afoul of Putin. During the ensuing fight, his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered. That turned Browder into an activist, and he's since spent his life and his fortune trying to bring Sergei's killers to justice, a quest that created a law called the Magnitsky Act, which freezes the assets of Russians known to have violated human rights. Browder has long been critical of Robacher, but when I asked him if there was anyone else in the U.S. government he worried about being too close to Russia, I was surprised when he gave me another name, Senator Rand Paul. Bill Broder, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Ballots this morning. Great to be here. Why don't we start with how you decided to become an investor in Russia after the fall of the Berlin Wall? Well, so I, I come from a, a, a very unusual American family. Um, my grandfather um, was the head of the American communists in the 1930s and 1940s. I was born in 1964. And when I was going through my teenage rebellion, uh, I decided that the best way of rebelling from this family of communists was to become a capitalist. And I graduated Stanford Business School in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was looking for my first job, I was sort of looking at sort of going to the regular interviews, not getting excited. My grandfather was the biggest communist in America, and the Berlin Wall has just come down. I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And that's what I set out to do. And moved to, I moved to London, and then I eventually moved to Moscow, and I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund, which uh, eventually did become the biggest investment fund in Russia. So you moved to Russia Things go very well for you for a couple years. Putin comes into power. Initially, you were a supporter of Putin. Things changed. Why don't, why don't you take me to that moment? So one of my main investment strategies running this investment fund uh, was that the, well, the companies I was investing in were all <clears throat> run by oligarchs who were stealing money from the companies. And so I started to attack the corruption by researching how they stole money and then exposing them through the international media. And as I was doing this, I realized early on that I, ha that I had this one uh, strange alignment of interests, which was that uh, Vladimir Putin, who had just come to power, was fighting with the same guys I was fighting with. They were stealing from power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me. And so for a while, I, as you mentioned, I was a supporter of his as he was openly helping crush oligarchs who were doing all this nasty stuff. The problem was that um, he wasn't doing this for the same reason I was doing it. He was doing it just because he wanted the oligarchs to um, basically be on his side. And he decided to, to win his war with the oligarchs. He arrested the richest oligarch in the country, 
a guy named Michael Hordakovsky. He was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrested him, put him on trial, and allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. When all the other oligarchs saw this on television, they went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And he said, it's real straightforward, 50%. And from that moment on, this was 2004, Putin became the richest man in the world. And all of a sudden, my interests diverged with Putin's because every time I, I, I was complaining about corruption after that, I was no longer going after his enemies. I was going after 50% of his own economic interests. So under Putin, you basically made the turn from being an activist investor to just being an activist. Um, why don't you take me through the Magnitsky Act? Once Putin's and my interests diverged, he went after me. And he went after me by expelling me from the country and then um, declaring me a threat to national security, then, having, then, then raiding my office, <clears throat> seizing all of my company's documents, and then using those documents to perpetrate a very complicated $230 million tax rebate fraud. While this was all going on, I needed to hire a lawyer to help me try to stop it. I hired the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia, a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. And Sergei figured it all out. He exposed what was going on, and he was then subsequently arrested. He was put in pretrial detention, tortured for 358 days, and killed on November 16th, 2009, at the age of 37, leaving a wife and two children. And so I've been on a mission since his murder nine years ago to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky. That led to me going to America and telling his story to members of Congress, to Senators John McCain and Benjamin Cardin and the Senate and Congressman Jim McGovern and others in the House of Representatives. And these congressmen put together something which is now known as the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act imposes visa sanctions and asset freezes on the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and the people who do similar horrific things in Russia. And the Magnitsky Act passed in 2012 in the Senate 92 to 4. It passed 89% of the House of Representatives, and it became law on December 14th, 2012. There are now 49 people on the Magnitsky list. Every year in December, they add new people. Uh, the Trump administration, in spite of Trump's uh, warm noises towards Putin, his administration um, added people. Uh, we're expecting more this year. The Magnitsky Act has been globalized now. It doesn't just apply to Russia. Uh, it applies to all countries around the world. And rogues gallery of bad people are being sanctioned by the U.S. government right now for human rights abuse. And Putin hates this. Putin hates this more than anything in the world. And the reason he hates it is because the Magnitsky Act, one, it names the people who are guilty of human rights abuses. And then it says, we're going to take those people's money away. And Putin is, is guilty of human rights abuse. And in my estimation, he's the richest man in the world. I think he's got $200 billion of savings. And he holds that money in Western banks. And so Putin feels and, not, and he's not unjustified in feeling this way, that his own fortune is at risk because of the Magnitsky Act. And so since it was passed back in 2012, he's made it his single largest foreign policy priority to have the Magnitsky Act repealed. Tell me what we know about Putin's finances. I know the Panama Papers gave us sort of a unique window into some of the finances of his cronies. 
what else do we know about this $200 billion, which, which you say is hidden around the globe? The first thing we know is that Putin doesn't keep any money in his own name. And he doesn't keep any money in his own name because anybody who has a document proving that could then use it to blackmail him. And since Putin is the ultimate KGB officer who uses blackmail and bribery to influence everybody, he doesn't want to be having somebody using that against him. So where does he keep the money? He's got to keep the money in names of people he trusts. And the people who are um, who he trusts are either very old friends or very rich people who are under his thumb and under his control, oligarchs. And so effectively, he has what I call handshake agreements with trustees. One of those trustees was exposed in the Panama Papers as being a um, Putin childhood friend, a godfather of Putin's daughter, who's a famous cellist in the Mariinsky Orchestra in St. Petersburg. And this famous cellist, his name is Sergei Roldugin, according to the Panama Papers, has received $200 billion of largesse from the Russian government and from Russian oligarchs. In addition to this fellow, there's many other trustees, including what I call oligarchs trustees. And these are Russian oligarchs. And when you see somebody worth, let's say, $12 billion on paper, that's an oligarch maybe in Forbes magazine, that person isn't worth $12 billion. They're probably worth six because the other six is being held um, for Vladimir Putin. You spent a lot of time in Russia in the financial world. I'm wondering if you've had any personal interactions with any of these billionaires who are popping up in things like the Mueller indictment right now. So I lived in Russia for 10 years. I was running the largest investment fund there. And so I had a lot of opportunities to interact with and meet at different times all of these oligarchs. And these are really unpleasant people. Let me tell you something. These are just awful people. They're not the kind of people that you would want to, under any circumstances, to interact with. They're nasty pieces of work. It doesn't surprise me at all that um, in order to protect their own, whatever remaining wealth they had that Putin hasn't squeezed out of them, they're doing whatever he asks. And it's quite plausible and possible and likely that the oligarchs were doing some of Putin's electoral interference work by paying different people and donating money to different causes, etc. So that kind of brings us to July when Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin meet in Helsinki and suddenly up on the stage, Bill Browder's name comes up. Yeah, so this is a really uh, interesting story. So the, the summit was taking place on a Monday in July. And on the Friday before the summit, Robert Mueller, in his investigation, names 12 Russian GRU agents, GRU is military intelligence agents, as being behind the um, uh, hacking of the U.S. election. And so the Russians knew that that Trump was going to be under huge pressure to bring this up at the summit, whether he wanted to or not. And so they had to come up with their own sort of counter narrative. And so the, the summit took place on a Monday. Trump and Putin had a two-hour secret meeting where nobody else was present other than translators. And then at the press conference, the question was asked, um, what's going to happen with these 12 GRU agents? And at that point, Putin said, well, we, ha- we have thought about this and we've decided that we're going to give access to Mr. Mueller and his team to these 12 GRU agents under one condition, that America and President Trump provides us access to Bill Browder and a bunch of what he calls American intelligence assets. And then he went on to describe all these alleged crimes that I had committed, including saying that I had taken $1.5 billion out of Russia and donated $400 million of it to the 
Hillary Clinton campaign, which is complete and utter nonsense. I didn't donate a penny. And, and then Trump said, and this is pretty amazing to me, uh, that's an incredible offer. And it took Trump about four days to um, to reject that offer. And it was only one hour before the Senate voted 98 to zero um, to not hand me and the 11 other Americans over. And so it was quite a moment in, in history. And, and um, uh, for me, quite interesting to see how uh, how Donald Trump was behaving on, uh, in relation to me specifically. What are we to make of Donald Trump in that situation? I mean, every political impulse would have been to come out and be strong against Russia at that point, especially on the, the backdrop of the Mueller investigation, and he comes out and does the exact opposite. It's a very difficult question to sort of get into the mind and psychology of Donald Trump. I mean, he's just the most unpredictable, self-centered, um, rash character around. I mean, the most charitable explanation of this is that the man doesn't read, he doesn't get briefed, he doesn't do his homework, and he went into this meeting having no idea what any of these people were talking about and just talking nonsense. That's the most charitable explanation. You know, there's far less charitable explanations which which are, you know, surrounding the whole allegation that he's colluding with Putin. I honestly don't know the answer to why he was behaving the way he was. Um, I was offended that that he would even consider it. And I was offended that it took him four days to walk it back. I mean, uh, okay, fair enough. Maybe he didn't do his homework, but surely somebody afterwards said that that, that this is absurd. You should immediately openly reject it when he got briefed. But it took him four days. And and I remember there was this this, um, um, press conference with Sarah Saunders Huckabee where the New York Times correspondent asked him, well, what do you have to say about this um, Bill, handing Bill Browder and the 11 Americans over? And she said, well, the president is, advi- is consulting with his advisors. That would have been a perfect moment for her to say this is outrageous, it's complete nonsense, the president dismissed it out of hand, or something like that. But, but it, she didn't, and it took until the next day before, before this thing was finally rejected. So just while we're talking psychology, what would Putin be thinking in that situation? I mean, it seems almost like an added humiliation on the public stage to make a demand like that and not have it be rejected outright days after the U.S. intelligence service says that Putin was intervening in the U.S. election. What would he get out of that? Do you think he honestly thought that you would end up on a plane to Russia? No. Uh, so, so, so first of all, Putin is is he was he was just licking his chops there in Helsinki because just summit it was a, an amazing, huge geopolitical accomplishment for him. Just to so understand, Russia is a country with an economy the size of the state of New York, and a military budget ninety percent less than the U.S.'s military budget. And here he is on the same stage as equals with the most powerful man in the free world, just being there was this amazing, huge, gigantic triumph for Vladimir Putin. And then all of a sudden, he's making this this unbelievable, uh, unacceptable suggestion. For, from his standpoint, he wasn't expecting that anyone would be handed over, but he was just trying to be cute, saying, okay, you want our guys? Well, I want your guys. That was sort of his uh, way of presenting this whole thing. And it took away, by the way, from the, from the legitimacy of, of the Mueller's request, because all of a sudden, on one hand, you have uh, you have um, uh, murderous thugs in the GRU intelligence agency who have committed crimes. And on the other hand, you've got 
Bill Browder, the author of the Magnitsky Act, and 11 other Americans who have played a role in passing the Magnitsky Act. And to put that as sort of comparable on equal footing, it, it must have made Putin the happiest guy in the world. Do you have any particular insight as to why Putin would have wanted Trump elected other than the fact that he was very unhappy with the Magnitsky Act under Obama and also Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State? Well, I think that uh, he, he wanted Trump elected for exactly the reason that uh, what we've seen is that Trump is clearly positively personally disposed towards Putin. Any other situation, it doesn't matter, Democrat or Republican, um, every other person um, who is running for president, every other person who's been president has concluded that, that Russia, that Vladimir Putin is a malicious force in the world and needs to be dealt with and contained. And all of a sudden he has this complete... Uh, uh, unexpected, unpredictable character who just loves him, um, and it's truly a windfall for Putin that um, that Trump is in the in the White House and causing all this confusion and 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 so on and so forth. So, if we could go back to American politics for a minute, you in July said that you thought there was a congressman who was on Putin's payroll. Yes, that is that man. In my opinion, is Dana Rohrabacher, Republican from Orange County, California. And I don't say this um, lightly, and I don't say this without a whole ton of, of circumstantial evidence. Dana Rohrabacher, in 2016, traveled to Moscow. He met with the Deputy General Prosecutor of Russia, a man named Victor Green. Victor Green is on the U.S. sanctions list for his role in the Magnitsky case. And Victor Green gave Rohrabacher a bunch of documents which he wanted Rohrabacher to deal with, you know, to basically disseminate in Washington among his colleagues. And he gave Rohrabacher a, um, a, a Russian propaganda movie that he wanted Rohrabacher to show in Washington, which was defaming me and defaming Sergei Magnitsky. Rohrabacher then goes back to Washington, and there's, there was something called the Global Magnitsky Act, which was being under consideration in the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And Rohrabacher goes to the head of the committee, and he says to him, this law was named after a crook, um, Sergei Magnitsky, and it should be taken off the agenda. And the head of the committee didn't know um, one way or another, and so he just took it. He didn't want to get into trouble, so he took it off the agenda. And it was only after we then publicized that he did this that they put it back onto the agenda. Rohrabacher then, at the committee, issued an amendment to the, to the Global Magnitsky Act to say remove the name Magnitsky because he then claimed Magnitsky was a crook. And then at that point, all the other members of the committee then ganged up on him, and there was a vote, and the only vote in favor of taking the name off was Dana Rohrabacher's. And so Dana Rohrabacher then, then wanted to hold a subcommittee meeting, hearing, and he wanted to then screen the, the anti-Magnitsky, anti-Bill Browder movie at this hearing. And it was only after the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee heard about this and intervened that he made it um, impossible for that to happen. Then Dana Rohrabacher took this movie and used his congressional office to then invite other members of Congress and, and, and representatives of the State Department to come to a screening of the movie at the Museum in Washington, D.C. And so Rohrabacher has been on a constant, huge initiative on behalf of the Russians. There's absolutely no reason why any member of Congress would do this and would do this in such with such intensity and such consistency and such high levels of energy um, unless there was something else going on. 
and um, and so my assessment is that that somehow the Russians have either got damaging information on Dana Rohrabacher, which would be some type of blackmail, or that they've uh, found some way of financing him in such a way that that they've influenced his behavior to such an extreme the way I just described it. Is there anybody else in the U.S. government who you're suspect of? Well, so Dana Rohrabacher, I've got all this personal experience with. The other person who I'm very suspicious about is Rand Paul. So Rand Paul, who's a, a Republican senator from Kentucky, traveled to Moscow, came back from Moscow, and then um, uh, put an amendment into the sanctions law at the House for, I mean, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee very recently, trying to ease sanctions on Russian politicians. And again, why would he do that? The people of Kentucky don't want that to happen. Um, uh, when, when it went for a vote, it was, it was I think, I can't remember the numbers, but it was one, one person for Rand Paul and I think 21 against. It, the whole thing didn't make any sense. Now, I don't have any specific um, anecdotal information about who he met with in Moscow and, and anything else that he's up to, but it makes no sense to me why a, a U.S. politician under the circumstances right now would be trying to um, uh, uh, loosen sanctions on Russia. So we know what happens to people who oppose Putin internationally. A lot of them end up dead. Are you worried about your own safety? Well, there's two questions. Am I at risk of being killed by the Putin regime? The answer is yes. I've been threatened on a number of occasions. I've been threatened with death. I've been threatened with kidnapping. Um, The Russians have issued um, 12 requests for the British government to provide mutual legal assistance in handing me over to the Russians. Um, which have been all been rejected. The Russians have gone to Interpol, the international police organization, seven times to have a red notice arrest warrant issued for me. I was even recently arrested on this red notice in Madrid, Spain, on the 30th of May. So they want to get me back to Russia. Um, the Russians have sued me all over the world for various things. They've sued me for libel. They've sued me for bankruptcy. They've prosecuted me in Russia and sentenced me to 18 years in prison in absentia. Um, they've accused me of murdering Sergei Magnitsky and they accused me of being a serial killer. They're after me in every possible way. And so the answer is, yes, I'm at risk. But you ask a different question is, do I fear for my life? And the answer is, I do not live in fear. I specifically don't live in fear because if I did, that they would have already achieved 95% of their object- objectives. People who live in fear don't go after them. I, I do this all because they murdered Sergei Magnitsky at the age of 37 as my proxy. And I'm not going to let them intimidate me, and I'm going to go after them until we finally get justice for Sergei Magnitsky. So I've got one more question for you, and this is just a big over-the-horizon look. How does this end for Putin? How does this end for America? Well, it doesn't end well for Putin. It's just a question of how long it takes to not end well. You know, He looks like a tough guy, but he doesn't really have a firm control over Russia for the simple reason that he's a fraud who's acting against the national interest. And at the moment, he runs, he controls all the message to, to the Russian people claiming he's doing a good job. But, you know, when, when you're hungry and angry, eventually that's going to boil over. And, and uh, he's trying to oppress the Russian people or, or with arrests and firings and, and assassinations when people are not behaving themselves. But that only goes so far. If, if you have a country full of angry people, eventually it's not going to work. Now, it, it, it may carry on for many years or it may all come undone very quickly. Nobody really knows. Now, how does it end for America? I'm much more confident about this, which is that Putin is a very minor league player when you look at it objectively. He really has no opportunity to play on an equal level 
uh, to America. And so the only thing he can do is sort of play around the edges with all of these these hacking attempts and these social media bots and, and fake news and so on and so forth. And that's just a scam. He's just a scammer who's running a little scam that kind of works for the moment while this loophole exists. But this loophole of him being able to scam us in the West is going to quickly close. And I don't believe that he's going to be able to sort of ruin the American system. It looks kind of terrible at the moment. He's created chaos. He's created all sorts of misinformation. He's not even a strategic player. He's just playing for tomorrow and then worrying about what he's going to do the day after tomorrow. I once heard a commentator say his political moves are more judo than chess, which I think about from time to time. What you have to understand is, like, unlike the Chinese who are playing for the next 200 years, he's just playing for the next month, the next week, the next day. He doesn't know what's going to happen after that month. And, and so he's just, he's just rolling the dice every day. He's a gambler now, and it's not going to work out well for him. All right, Bill Browder, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Ballots. Thank you. That's it for Bots and Ballots this week. I reached out to both Robacher and Rand Paul about Broder's comments. Robacher's press secretary responded, in part, Congressman Robacher is a champion of the United States. His policy views are based on what he believes is best for the country, period. Any assertion that he is in Russia's pocket is nonsense. He has consistently advocated cooperation with the Russians only in areas of mutual benefit, such as fighting radical Islamic terrorism and the rise of communist China. He has also believes that unrelenting hostility to Russia is not in the interest of the United States. To suggest that means he is acting on Russia's behalf is not only false, but shameful. It's unfortunate that Broder and the media have pushed that narrative. I'm going to post the full statement on my Twitter feed. I didn't hear back from Senator Rand Paul. I'm going to quickly revisit a story I did a few weeks ago about Georgia's election system being susceptible to hacking and about the Secretary of State Brian Kemp's efforts to keep it from being updated in time for the election in November. Kemp is also running for governor this year, essentially overseeing the election that he's running in. Last week brought more election news from Georgia. The AP discovered that Kemp has placed 53,000 new voter registrations in limbo. 70% of those are African-American. The policy behind this is an exact match for names, meaning things like a missing letter or a hyphen can flag a registration. He's currently being sued. Thanks for listening this week. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Leah Hitchens, my producer. Thank you for listening. I'm Grant Burningham.